Well, good morning, everyone, and welcome once again to our Bible study here on Sunday morning. We are making our way through the book of 1 Peter, and we've come now to the end of chapter 2, and we'll be looking at verses 24 and 25. The title of our lesson is The Purpose of the Cross. Now, the subject of our lesson today may strike some of you as being uh, a bit too theological. And because of that, maybe you see it as being impractical. But I hope in the next few minutes to show you that in reality, there is no more practical subject in the whole Bible than the subject of the cross. Now, we'll get there in just a few minutes, but as we begin, we first let's situate ourselves within the context so that we know where Peter is coming from. In verse 9, as we've seen over the past couple of weeks, Peter has given us our purpose. You are a chosen race, a holy nation, that you may proclaim the excellencies of God. You see, this is the goal. This is the purpose of the Christian life. You have been chosen. You have been set apart to live in such a way that shows God, that puts Him on display. Now, there are ways to do that, of course. We can do it through our voice. We can do it through language. We can do it through words. But we all know the old adage still rings true that actions speak louder than words. The, the best way, the loudest way we can proclaim His excellencies is through the way we act, through our conduct, through our uh, behavior. Now, I believe with that in mind, Peter is giving us three examples of what real Christianity looks like in the real world. And all three of these foundationally uh, deal with the same thing. They deal with submission to those in authority over us. Now, we asked this question last week. How does submission to authority declare the excellencies of God or, or put Him on display in our life? Well, the answer last week was this type of behavior is contrary to our fallen nature or our flesh. It is evidence to anyone with eyes to see that something more than nature, something above nature, super nature or supernatural is at work in our life. So he's giving us these three examples. Um, uh, last week we saw, uh, or two weeks ago, we saw Christian citizenship in verses 13 through 17. Last week we looked at Christian employment in verses 18 to 23. And then next week we'll look, uh, begin chapter 3 and look at Christian marriage. But as we come to our verses today, Peter has just finished talking about Christian servants and how they're being treated unjustly. What if you are a servant with an abusive boss or an abusive employer or abusive master. What does real Christianity look like in that situation? Well, in verses 18 to 20, he gave us that answer. Servants, be subject or submit to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and the gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious or a grace thing when mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, 
This is a gracious thing in the sight of God. Now, I want you to imagine for a moment the Apostle Peter. He's sitting there and he's writing this letter. And he's just using words like beaten and suffer and unjustly. And I can it naturally in his mind, I can see him begin to think about Jesus Christ. After all, he, he was there. He saw the stripes on his back. He, he saw the folds of flesh that had been uh, 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 taken off by that cat of nine tails that they used to whip people with. Peter had seen all of that, so naturally I think his mind went to the example of Jesus Christ. And that's exactly what he says in verses 21 to 23. For, this, for to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but he continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Now, let's stop right here and let's just be brutally honest. What Peter is asking us to do is a very big ask. He is asking us to suffer unjustly, not because we've done something wrong, but because we've done something right, he's saying you, you, you should be respectful, you should submit to it, you should not speak back, you shouldn't revile or threaten or try to take revenge. Now, again, if we're really honest, this is a very big ask. You see, I want to follow the example of Jesus. I really do. I want to walk in His steps. I, I want with everything in me to put God on display in my life. I, I want to be one of those people who can just hand it over to God and, and trust Him to handle it, trust Him to put all things right. I, I want to do all of those things, but to be honest, I'm not sure I can. You see, because I know myself. I know how petty and spiteful and vengeful and self-serving I can be. You see, I want to be that man, but honestly, I don't even know how that's even possible. Now that brings us to today's verses. Look at verse 24 and 25. He himself, Peter says, bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. For you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and the overseer of your souls. Now, why would Peter... Remember, he's in the middle of giving us three examples of the Christian life. Three examples of submission to authority. Why would he, in the very middle of these three examples, take this seemingly detour... And start talking about the work of cross on the, of the the work of Christ on the cross. Did he did he lose his his train of thought? Did he just somehow just you know venture off and start chasing a, a rabbit, so to speak? No, no, he didn't. You see, Peter is writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, and I can tell you, he knows exactly what he's doing. 
You see, Peter understands something that I think sometimes we forget. And that is all of our day-to-day problems stem from sin. They come from our own sin. They come from a fallen world that's fallen because of sin. They come from the sin of others against us. And they come from our sinful reactions to what others do against us. And you see, here's the thing. The solution to sin is found one place and one place only, and that is the cross of Jesus Christ. So our problems happen to us because of sin. The answer to sin is the cross. Therefore, the answer to our problems are found in the cross of Jesus Christ. These two simple verses here at the end of chapter 2 explain to us how the cross addresses our sin problem. First of all, it delivers us from the penalty of sin. And then second of all, it delivers us from the power of sin. Now, I want to look at both of these and just uh, just take a few minutes. Let's look first at how the cross delivers us from the penalty of sin. Now, this is clearly what Peter means when he says in verse 24, He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. Now notice, first of all, his use of the word tree. He doesn't use the word cross. The word that he uses in the Greek is literally tree. Now Peter, of course, is thinking back in his mind, because he's well acquainted with the Old Testament, he's thinking back to Deuteronomy 21. If a man has committed a sin deserving of death, and he is put to death, and you hang him on a tree, his body shall not remain overnight on the tree, but you shall surely bury him that day, so that you do not defile the land which the Lord your God is giving you as an inheritance. For he who is hanged is a curse of God. The Apostle Paul, in his letter to the Galatians in chapter 3, says the same thing or refers to the same uh, passage. It says, Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us, For as it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. Now here's what both Paul and Peter are doing. They both want us to see that Christ took on himself as our substitute the curse or the condemnation or the judgment which we deserved. He bore our sins in his body. Now, I was looking this week for maybe a... a, a better way to explain it. And so I decided to give you an analogy. And this analogy turned out to be pretty easy because it's an analogy that Jesus himself gave to a man named Nicodemus. Now, we all know the story in John chapter 3 of Jesus' meeting with Nicodemus. Nicodemus is a Pharisee and he, he comes to Jesus at night and And he says, uh, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher from God because uh, nobody could do the things you do unless God is with him. Now, if you go back and read the story, of course, Jesus isn't really concerned about all that. He immediately starts telling Nicodemus, you must be born again. Except a man be born again, Jesus said, he cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, I want you to keep in mind that we've heard that thousands of times. 
Uh, I know in my life, I've heard it thousands upon thousands, the phrase born again. I've, I've been taught about what it means to be born again. I've heard it over and over and over. But you have to understand, Nicodemus was the first to ever hear it. And he just couldn't grasp it. He said, well, does that mean I have to go back in my mother's womb and, and come out again? Later on, I believe it's in verse 9, he said, how can these things even be? So Jesus is understanding the problems that Nicodemus is having, so he gives him an analogy in verses 14 and 16. Jesus said this, As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. I don't know if you noticed that or not, but right before the most famous verse in the Bible, John 3.16, Jesus compares himself to a serpent. Now, what is Jesus talking about? Well, he's talking about a story that is recounted to us in Numbers chapter 21. It's when Moses has led the children of Israel out of Egypt. They're wandering around in the wilderness and it says this in Numbers 21, From Mount Or they set out by the way to the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom. And the people became impatient on the way, and the people spoke against God and against Moses. Why have you brought us out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? There's no food and no water, and this food you gave us, and they're talking about the manna that God, this miraculous manna, they said, we hate this worthless food. It says, Then the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people so that many people of Israel died. And the people came to Moses and said, We've sinned, for we've spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord that he take those serpents away from us. So Moses prayed for the people, and the Lord said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole. And everyone who is bitten, when he sees it, they shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent, and he set it on a pole. And if a serpent bit anyone, he would look at that bronze serpent and live. Now, I want to point out three things about that story. But first of all, first thing is God does not remove the serpents. You know, the people, if you notice, they said, take the serpents away. Pray God that he would remove them. But God didn't do that. He left them in place. He gave them a way to be healed, but he didn't take the serpents away. Number two, the serpent itself on the pole is not preventative. It doesn't keep people from being bitten. It doesn't keep people with, from being infected with this poison from the serpents. It gives them a way to live. And number three, healing from the curse of the, of the serpent or being bitten by the serpent involves a picture of the curse itself. By the way, there's no real magic in the bronze serpent. The, what, what brought about the healing was obeying God's word. Now, Jesus compares himself to this serpent, talking to Nicodemus. He says, as Moses lifted up the servant, serpent, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. In other words, in like manner or in the same way. So let's do a comparison between those two. Number one, just as God did not remove the serpents, God does not remove sin from our life. You see, if we're honest, don't we just want it all gone? 
Don't we just want the suffering that's caused by sin, the, the pain that comes with sin, the temptations, the testing? We just pray, God, take it out of my life. Take away the desires. Take away the, the lust. Take away the temptations. Just take it away. But God doesn't do that. Number two, just as the serpent did not prevent people from being bit, Jesus came for those who are already infected with the poison of sin. You know, Jesus said that, for example, I came to seek and save those who are lost. I didn't come for the righteous, but for sinners. Jesus is coming to give those that are infected with sin a way to live. Number three, the means that God chooses to rescue people from the curse is a picture of the curse itself. 2 Corinthians 5.21 He made him who knew no sin to be sin for us. You see, just as the Israelites had to look at a bronze serpent on a pole to be healed from the bite of a poisonous snake, if you and I want to be rescued and healed from our sin, then we have to look to the one who bore our sin on the cross. You see, Nicodemus comes to, to Jesus and says, we know you're a teacher from God. And, 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 and what Jesus is saying, no, Nicodemus, look to me, not as a healer, not as a miracle worker, not as your banker, not as your life coach. Look to me as your Savior. Look to me as the one who is lifted up, who died for you, who was wounded for you, who was made sin for you, as the one who paid your sin debt. Look upon me and live. Now listen, I know that we live in a day of imperfect justice at best. We can all read about or talk about situations we've seen where somebody commits a horrible crime and they get off on a technicality or we, we see people convicted of, for example, of something like rape and they serve a few years and they parole them out and they do it again. We've seen others admit to horrendous crimes and plead insanity and then serve a few years in a, in a mental facility. We see huge disparities in justice uh, across racial lines and across economic lines. Now see, we all know that's not justice. Yet how many people think that God's justice is just like that? They go through life and they, they shrug off sin as if, as if it's no big deal to God. They think that in the end they'll get off on some technicality or maybe God will let them serve a few years over here before letting them into heaven. But in some form or fashion... They see God's justice like the justice of the world. But let me tell you, that's not the truth. Every human being is infected with the poison of sin. And God has made a way for you to be healed and delivered and rescued from the poison of that sin. You see, there's only one man who was lifted up on a tree. There was only one man who bore in his body your sins and mine. And that's Jesus Christ. John 14, 6, Jesus said, I am the way, not I am a way or one of the ways. I am the way. No one comes to the Father except through me. You see, the Bible is very clear. God does not take sin, any sin, lightly. In the end, every single sin must be judged and it will be judged without any partiality whatsoever. See, the fact is, either your sin is on you 
and you'll bear the penalty or your sin is on Christ who has already bore the penalty. That is the first purpose of the cross, to deliver us from the penalty of sin. Now, let me give you a what-if scenario. What if the Bible taught that the death of Christ took away the guilt of sin, but it left us enslaved to its power? Or let me put it another way. What if I told you the Bible taught that you could go on living the same way the world does, only without the punishment? Now here's the question. Would you see that as good news, or would you see that as bad news? Let me tell you, if that sounds like good news to you, something's wrong. Something is desperately wrong. You see, Christians should want something different. We should long to be set free, not just from the penalty of sin, but we should, be, we should long to be set free from the enslaving power of sin. And thank God, thank God, that is exactly what the cross of Jesus Christ does. It not only delivers us from the penalty, it delivers us from the power of sin as well. I want to give you four things that these verses teach us about the power of sin. Number one, Peter tells us the power of sin caused us to stray like sheep. Verse 25, he says this, For you were straying like sheep, but you've now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Uh, believe it or not, I actually raised sheep for several years, and I can tell you they are some of the dumbest animals around. If you just leave them on their own, they'll just continually wander off and, and get themselves into trouble. And the reason is, is because they really seem to only care about one thing, and that's filling their, their belly. Uh, they will put their head down and they'll begin to graze and they'll just wander off and they don't even notice their surroundings. They don't notice uh, the danger that may be all around them. It always reminds me when I think of this is uh, the, the scripture in Philippians chapter 3 where Paul says this about unbelievers. Their end is destruction. Their God is their belly. And they glory in their shame with their minds set on earthly things. You see, folks, that is who we were. Our God was our belly, our desires, our lust, our passions. Our mind was just set on earthly things, We not on eternal things. That's who we were. Like sheep, we weren't cognizant of this danger that was all around us. We didn't even notice it. We were lost, and we were absolutely clueless. That's the other thing about sheep, by the way. They're not like a dog. You know, when a dog, we see stories in the news sometimes, a dog is lost hundreds of miles away and it somehow makes its way. Not sheep. They are absolutely incapable of finding their way back to their, their shepherd or back to their home. The only way they'll ever come back is if the shepherd takes the initiative to go look for them. Jesus talks about this, of course, in Luke 15. It says, Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to hear him. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. So he told them this parable. What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, doesn't leave the ninety-nine in open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. 
Just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who needs no repentance. You see, what this is telling us very explicitly is that none of us can boast in our own wisdom in coming to Christ. If we have turned to Christ or returned to Christ, it's because He came looking for us. He found us, put our sins on His own shoulders, bore our sins in His own body, and brought us back. After all, Luke 19, 10, it's what He said, the Son of Man came to seek and to save. He found us. Number two, to, to overcome the power of sin requires healing. Verse 24, He Himself bore our sins in His body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By His wounds you have been healed. Now I want to make something clear. I hear that verse quoted sometime as referring to physical healing, but that is not correct. In fact, it's obviously not correct in the context. Peter's saying you died to sin, lived to righteousness, you were straying like sheep, you've returned to the shepherd. He's talking about the ability of Christ's death on the cross to heal us from this poisonous killing power of sin. He's talking about being it's talking about a spiritual healing, a healing from the effects and the power of sin. That's what he's what he's talking about. This leads us to number three. To overcome the power of sin requires death and new life. Again, verse 24. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. Now, that is an incredible statement. He's not the only one that makes it. Paul makes it in other places in the Bible. But before we move on, I want to just soak that in for a minute. For a minute. He bore our sins in his body. He, he suffered the, the, the thorns that were thrust into his head, the, the stripes on his back, the blood, all of that. He took all of that and he took it for us. Why? It doesn't say so that we could go to heaven. It doesn't say that he did it in order that we might have this great peace. By the way, those are all benefits, but that's not what it says. He did all of that so that we would die to sin and live to righteousness. You see, He did all of that so that we might have a new life. He did it to transform us from sinners into saints. He did it to change us. Now, let's get down to some specifics. The power of sin is so great in our life that you cannot be delivered by sheer willpower. You, you can't just decide one day, you know, I'm not going to do that anymore. There had to be a death of the old man and a resurrection of the new man in Jesus Christ. Now, the Bible talks about this in multiple places. I'll give you two. Galatians 2.20, Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In Colossians 3.1, it says this, If then... You have been raised with Christ. Seek things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things that are above, not on things of the earth, for or because you have died. And your life, your new life, is hidden with Christ in God. You see, what the Scripture tells us is when Christ was crucified, I was crucified with Him. When He died on that cross, I died on that cross with Him. 
When he rose from the dead, I too was raised to new life. And because of that, the power of sin in my life is now broken. Now let me tell you, that just sounds so cool to me. It just sounds so wonderful. Even if it is a little hard to understand. It just sounds great. But here's the thing. I don't feel dead to sin. To be honest, sometimes I don't even feel weak towards sin. The fact is, the same lust that I struggled with before I was converted to Jesus Christ, they still rear up and entice me. So what's the deal? Am I just living in denial? What, what does the Bible mean when it talks about dying and living? Well, I'm going to tell you two things this morning that I hope will help you because they helped me. The first is this. Being dead to sin is an accomplished fact. You may not know about it. You may not even really understand it, but it's still true. You see, that took place the instant you and I were united with Christ. The, the very instant, the very moment you trusted Christ, you were born again, you were regenerated, you were converted. When that happened, you were identified with him in his death on the cross. And all the benefits of his death became yours. Paul talks about this in one of the most incredible chapters in the Bible, which is Romans 6. Listen to what he says. Knowing this, that our old man was crucified with him, that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves of sin, because he who has died has been freed from sin. Now, if we died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him, knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, dies no more. For death no longer has dominion over him. For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all. And the life that he lives, he lives to God. Now listen, Paul says this, Likewise, you also. Likewise, you also. Reckon yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Paul says Consider yourself. Think about yourselves in this way. I am dead to sin. Now, I know what you're thinking. See, that's an accomplished fact. That happened on the cross. But you still, you say, but I don't feel dead to sin. So here's the second thing that may help you. When the Bible talks about death, it never, and I mean never, means the cessation of existence. You see, when, when people die physically, they never go out of existence, whether you're a believer or an unbeliever. You don't just cease to exist. In fact, what happens is your soul is separated from your body. That's what the Bible means when it talks about death. It's not a cessation of existence, but a separation. And that's what death means. So think about this. To be identified with Christ in His death means that I am separated from that old man and the power. Think about it this way. I, I was, before Christ, I was entangled by sin. I, it, it had its tendrils into me all throughout my, my body and my spirit and my life. I mean, it just, I was, it had a stranglehold on me. But see, he says, now I'm separated. In fact, here's something that I think you'll find interesting. The word Peter uses in verse 24 for die is a unique word in the New Testament. In fact, this is the only time it's ever used. 
It's never used anywhere else in the New Testament except for here. And that word means to be away from or to depart from or to be separated. You see, what Peter's saying is the purpose of the work of Christ on the cross is that we might, let's not use the word die, but be separated from sin. That thing that strangled me, that thing that had its tendrils into me, I am now separated from that thing that had a stranglehold on me. Now listen, we still have to walk it out, but for the very first time, I have a real choice. Yes, that thing entices me. That thing wants me to come over to its side. But for the very first time, it has no power over me. It can't make me do anything. I can choose to obey God rather than the lust of the flesh. Sin's power has been broken. Let's go back to Philippians 3.19, that passage we looked at earlier. Their end is destruction, talking about unbelievers. Their God is their belly. Their mind is set on earthly things. That's not me anymore. My God is not my belly. I'm not ruled by my lust and my desires. That's, that's not what drives me anymore. My mind is no longer just set on earthly things, but I've picked my head up and now it's set on eternal things. That's not me anymore. See, the power of sin has been broken. Now, one final point. Number four, the power of sin requires the ongoing care of a shepherd. Man, I love this one. Verse 25, For you were straying like sheep, but you've now returned to the shepherd and the overseer of your souls. Let me tell you, this should be an incredibly comforting thought for us, that God is keeping watch over our soul. Listen, that doesn't eliminate the need for church leaders to keep watch. It doesn't eliminate the need to, to guard yourself against sin. But in the end, Peter says he is guarding. He is guiding as our shepherd and our overseer. It goes back to what Peter said in, in chapter 1, verse 5, that we are being kept by the power of God through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. I want to close with one final thought. St. Augustine of Hippo, who lived in the 4th century A.D., said this, Give what you command, and command what you will. Now, what he meant by that was, God, if you command me to do something, then give me the ability to do it. Command what you will, but give what you command. That's a great statement, and it's, and it's biblical. For example, the psalmist in Psalm 119.35 said this, Make me. Make me walk along the path of your commands, for that is where my happiness is found. Make me walk in your commands, because that's what I want to do. Let me tell you, I said earlier in this lesson, I want to be that man. I want to be the man that just lets go of things and lets God handle it. I, I, I want to be the kind of man who walks in Jesus' footsteps. And what we've seen is through the cross of Jesus Christ, I am now empowered to be that man. That work that he did freed me from the power of that old nature that always has to fight back, that always has to have my own way, that always has to vindicate myself. Now I'm free. Now he's guarding and he's guiding through the power of the Holy Spirit. For the first time, I can be that man. Let's pray. Father, 
As always, I thank you for your word. What an incredible word here in these two very short verses. Jesus, thank you. Thank you for what you did on that cross. Thank you that it not only delivered me from the penalty of sin, but it delivers us from the power of sin. So that when we open your word and we get these commands and we look at them and say, I want to do that, but how? Well, now we know how through the power of the cross. It turns out that old rugged cross is just as practical today as it ever has and if it ever will be. God, just I pray that the power of the cross will be working and be effective in the lives of, of, of the believers here at River of Life. And as always, Lord, we give you all the glory that you for everything that you do. In Jesus' name, amen.